St. Paul says to the Corinthians, as we heard in the second reading this fifth Sunday of Ordinary Time, Brothers and sisters, if I preach the gospel, this is no reason for me to boast. For an obligation has been imposed on me, and woe to me if I do not preach it. Before I continue, I'd like to say three things. One, if you voted for Joe Biden in the presidential election, please don't walk out on this homily. Never put your politics above your faith. Besides, this homily is not a political homily. Two, if you voted for Donald Trump, please do not applaud this homily. You know, we really shouldn't applaud uh, homilies. It's, it's really not good for a priest's humility. I know Catholics do it because, you know, sometimes, you know, words are said that really speak to us and we want to, we're not Baptists, so we don't say, Amen, praise the Lord, brother. Oh, yeah. We don't do that, so we go like that. And, and it's, you know, I, we understand, but what happens the next Sunday when you don't applaud the priest? You know, he starts thinking, Was that a bad homily? You know the, 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 the poor Claire nuns in Tonopah, where for years I was out there almost every Sunday helping them to say uh, Sunday Mass? They must have a policy where they do not even say, hey, good homily. They mention nothing about the priest's homily. I think the Mother Superior trains the nuns and says, it's not good for a priest for us to congratulate him. So as good as my homilies were, they would just... Stand there, and uh, after Mass, they wouldn't even mention it. You know, only once one of the nuns came by me after we were cleaning up after Mass, and she went like that and stuff. And I'm sure if Mother Superior found out, she'd be doing penance. Three, some of what I'm going to share today is violent. And so if you have young children here, make your decision as to whether or not what they may hear uh, is too violent for them. I'm going to tone it down the best I can, and I'm going to leave out some of the more grotesque parts, but a bit of it may be violent. In the spring of 1993, I was living in eastern Hungary, close to the border of Romania, as a member of the United States Peace Corps, which is a, a department of the United States State Department. A conference had been planned uh, to invite uh, members of the State Department, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, uh, members of uh, different groups, political groups, uh, economic groups, uh, in countries like Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, some of the other Eastern European countries that were coming out of 40 to 70 years of communism. And this symposium was designed to bring many of us together to listen to lectures and to speak about important uh, events and ideas about how to help some of these countries you know, embrace democracy and face some of the new economic principles and such. Well, it was held in Krakow, Poland, which is in the south of Poland. Now, we went there for the conference, but just 50 kilometers southwest of Krakow 
is the town of Auschwitz. And that name should be familiar with you. You've studied history. You've seen Schindler's List, other movies, documentaries. You know what happened in Auschwitz, one of the most famous Nazi concentration extermination camps during World War II. The camp is located just a few miles outside of the city of Auschwitz. And so while we were in Krakow one day, a group of us Americans decided to go and visit the uh, concentration camp where you can go and see what remains in the museum and such. And so we took a city bus, and it's about a two-hour drive, perhaps, out there. And we went and we viewed the camp. And we saw what you may have seen in documentaries. You're left somewhat speechless. After we had seen the camp that afternoon, we went to the bus stop outside the camp. The collective conversation amongst the Americans was, How in the world could such a thing have happened? How could people have tolerated this who knew about it? The town is only just a few miles away. Surely they saw the train boxcars going in with people on them and the people not coming back. You know, they say that one July it snowed there in that town. Snow fell from the sky, but it wasn't snow. It was the ashes from the crematoriums that were working overtime burning the bodies of the murdered dead. We asked ourselves, how in the world could such a thing have happened? Little did I know that in about 45 minutes I would get my answer. For the bus arrived and we got on the bus and it was very crowded, not just with tourists, but other people who needed to take the bus into the city. And we drove along. I sat in the very back of the bus with some of the other Americans, really tight in the back seat there where it's about six across. And it was nice and snuggly and stuff. And I just drifted into sleep as the bus roared on. Until I was awakened with the shout of a young girl saying, Stop it! Leave me alone! It was the voice of an American girl. I immediately woke up and looked down the aisle of the bus And in the middle of the bus, because it was too crowded, people were standing in the middle, there was a man who was drunk with his, I'm going to say, nine-year-old son. And that image really has never left me of the poor little boy who had this leather briefcase of his father's that was just filled with papers and stuff. And the, the man was bothering this one American girl. He was playing with her hair and trying to touch her, you know, her body and stuff. And she was, stop it, leave me alone and stuff. And the poor little boy is going, Papa, Papa, stop. I don't speak Polish, but there are situations where you don't need to know the language. I immediately got up and walked down the aisle. Now, I'm not going to get and punch the dude. I just got in between him. I squeezed myself in between him and the girl. And I just stood there and I told the girl, don't worry, he's not going to bother you. I'm not going to let him. And I just kept pushing him back so that, but he kept trying to reach over me and then sucker punching me, you know, in the back because he just, this guy just, you know, wanted to molest this girl and he was all drunk. And she's like, come on, knock it off. The bus driver, hey, knock it off back there. I'm going to pull over and knock, you know, let you go and stuff. Again, I don't speak Polish, but I'm sure that's what he said. 
The guy continued to do it, and somebody else yelled out in Polish, hey, leave that girl alone. And the bus driver just went, eh, finally got up out of his bus seat, came back, grabbed the man, and just dragged him and forced him, opened the door and pushed him out of the bus. Then he grabbed the little boy and took him out, and the boy had dropped the briefcase. He threw the briefcase. I remember the papers just went all over the place. The poor little boy was just out there gathering the papers. Oh, we got to get to the city. Come on. Come on, please. Stop! Please let my papa come on the bus. And it was just heart-wrenching to see this. The bus driver got on the bus, started it, and started going. But the drunk man ran and jumped into the bus. And the man shut the door on him and was dragging his feet. And so he stopped again, and he just pushed him out and said, Get out of this bus! And he had to get out of the bus to just get him away so he could jump on the bus and take off. The problem was where the bus driver had stopped was in front of a kochma. Now, kochma, at least that's a Hungarian term, is a bar. It's not a sports bar. It's a tough bar, tavern. It's a drinking place. Women don't go to kochmas. This is a place for men, men who want to drink and get drunk. Well, out of that kochma came three Polish men, one of them was very large. I'd say 6'3", 270 pounds. Remember, he had bald head. This guy was big. The other two rats that were with him were good-sized guys as well. When they came out of the coachman, they began walking up to the bus. They took the side of the man and the son who had been kicked off the bus. And they began to pummel the bus driver and beat him as we just looked out the window. They hit him so hard at one point that he fell to the ground and he was on all fours on the ground like a dog sitting there. Now here's one of the violent things. Have you ever seen a, a field goal kick in football where they hike the ball and they hold it and the kicker takes a running kick at the ball? Well, that man was down there on all fours. One of those rats backed up and just let it go to the man's head. His neck flew back. The blood just splattered flying. The man rolled down into a ditch. At that point, I just couldn't stop myself. I said, all American men off the bus! And I ran off the bus to confront this situation that was turning into attempted murder. And I looked back... Two guys got off the bus with me. Two guys. We're going to get our butts waxed here. Now, I have been able to talk my way out of just about every fight in my life. I think twice I was in a fight. Once I got jumped as a teenager by three guys. Unfortunately for them, my two older brothers weren't too far away, so when they saw it, they came and we unwound some clocks that day. But I'm not a fighter. And I look back at the bus and I see all these faces in the window and I'm like, like gesturing, come on! And they just stood there. And I'm like, man, we're going to get killed here. I don't know how, by the grace of God, we just kept our distance from those three 
hooligans and went down into the ditch to pick up the bus driver who was nearly unconscious with blood just pouring out of his head and out of his nose. And then we even grabbed the, the, the guy, the drunk and the little boy and just said, you know, we'll get him back on the bus. We're just going back on the bus. We got to go. They probably thought, uh, you guys, you know, they probably laughed at us and stuff and just thought, you know, you're not even worth it, you scrawny guys, chickens. And we got on the bus. The bus driver was able to get on the bus and get going. I think later the police came or we went to a police station or something. And I went back to my seat in the back of the bus and sat down. I was furious. I didn't want to talk to nobody. Good God, 45 minutes ago, everybody's asking, how in the world could Auschwitz have happened? How could they have stood by and let that happen? And then this happens, two guys get off the bus with me. Man, I was peeved. When we got to Krakow that evening, there was a big cocktail party with all the representatives of the different governments and stuff. Man, I didn't want to go to that. I didn't want to be around anybody, especially my American brothers. So I went walking around Krakow that night just thinking, God... How can things happen like this? Well, you told me, all right. And I went to a church and sat down, and I just said, I'm ashamed. We're Americans. We understand freedom. We've learned. Some, you just got to do the right thing sometimes, at whatever the cost is. And I just sat there in shame. Brothers and sisters, it's 30 years later. And it's still snowing outside. It's snowing with the ashes of the innocent unborn. More of them are being killed every year in the United States of America than the death camp of Auschwitz killed in its entire five-year history. Every year after year after year. Oh, it's snowing outside. And on top of that, we've just recently elected a Catholic president, and he is Catholic, he's baptized, he is a member of the family. We've just elected a Catholic president who is diametrically opposed to all of the basic moral principles that are proclaimed by the Roman Catholic Church. Not only abortion and the sanctity of human life, but the sanctity of marriage, and this gender silliness. How in the world did that happen? A Catholic! I'll tell you, if he wasn't Catholic, I probably wouldn't be so upset. He's a member of my family. He's the most powerful man in the world. And he is absolutely opposed to the basic understanding that God is the author of life. How in the world did this happen? You want an answer? I'll tell you the answer. Because our bishops have been silent for 60 years through bad catechesis and cowardice. They have barely said a thing. A few papers here and there. They speak of... There's things they could do. You say, well, why don't you do something? I'm just a little diocesan priest. I'm a grunt. They're the apostles. They have the voice. I just work for them at their privilege. They can get rid of me tomorrow. 
How have they allowed this to happen? What is it that they really believe? How poorly have they educated you? Good Lord. Can you imagine if in 2012, Mitt Romney, who was running for president, Mitt Romney, who was a Mormon, a member of the LDS Church, when he was running against President Barack Obama, if he were a cigar-smoking, whiskey-drinking, coffee-drinking Mormon, can you imagine if he had won the presidency? The Mormon church would have gone apoplectic. This is, this is not a representation of us. They just would have said, oh, no, 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 no. No, don't, don't look at him. He does not represent what we believe. Probably would have excommunicated him. But what do our bishops do? They just let it snow. I apologize if it sounds like I'm yelling at you. I am angry. It's a righteous anger, the same righteous anger that Jesus had when he drove the money changers out of the temple. He didn't hate those people, but he was outraged with a sense of righteous anger. Righteous anger means I'm incensed at what you are doing to someone else, and I am called to protect. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I have to stand up for this. Jesus had to stand up for his father's dignity, so he wanted a clean house. And I have this righteous anger. I'm just tired of this. Angry to the point where I am tempted to say this. If you are pro-abortion, I am tempted to ask you to leave St. Henry Parish. Leave this parish. Tempted to say that. Because then I think, where would you go? This is not just this parish that teaches this. This is the Catholic Church, the Holy Catholic Church of God that teaches this. What parish would accept your views? Sadly, you would find one. And that is an indictment against the bishops. But God help that parish that would let your ideas foster in their parish. And so instead, I will not ask you to leave. Why? Because this may be your only chance to repent, to change your mind, and to come to know the truth and finally embrace it. So I won't ask you to leave. This is your chance for salvation. You are welcome here. Even if you're pro-abortion, but your ideas are not welcome here and they will be given no quarter. The same with Joe Biden. He's a Catholic. He's a member of the family. If for some reason he would be in Buckeye on a Sunday, Joe Biden is welcome to come to Mass here. His ideas are not welcome here. And if you ask me a follow-up question, would you give him communion? No. Over my dead body. Not until he repents. He's a public figure. He needs to publicly repent. And we need to pray for his conversion. He is a member of the family. I will ask you this, though, if you're pro-abortion and you choose to stay, don't give us any money. Keep your money. Why? Because I'm an honest priest. And I want you to have some 
smidgen of integrity? Why in the world would you give money to an organization whose ideas are contrary to what you believe? Don't give money to this parish. Don't give money to any Catholic charity, any Catholic organization. Why would you do such a thing? I hate Planned Parenthood and what they do. I hate the fact that the government funds this private organization to continue evil at my expense as a taxpayer. Oh, I do pay taxes. <laughs> Can you imagine if I gave money to Planned Parenthood? Why in the world would I do such a thing? So if you're pro-abortion, keep your money. We are within target of perhaps in five years completing our parish campus. You see all the, the it's exploding around us. This is all good, good for us. We're moving on building a church. And if I'm going to build the church, I'm going to build the greatest Catholic church in the Diocese of Phoenix. I'm not going to just build some place where we can hang out. We have a hole right now. We just hang out here, okay? But what I'm going to build is going to cost $10 million. I'm not kidding you. Ten, maybe twelve. And it's going to be great. Otherwise, I'm not putting my name on it. You can get any priest to build a box for you. But I'm not going to build it with the money from pro-aborts. I'm going to build it from the money from people of faith who believe in what this church teaches about the most basic principle. Students in Christ, I feel like a university professor of literature who wants to teach you about Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace or Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment or any other great literature. But about half the class doesn't even know how to read or write. How in the world can I teach you about the beauty and the truths that, are, that lay hidden within Shakespeare when you can't even read it? i got to go back to kindergarten and first grade to start all over. And it's the same thing with this issue on life. we got to get over this hump, brothers and sisters. Can we please just get this down and just say God's the author of life. We have no right to mess with that life, to play with it, let alone end it because of some reason under the sun that it just doesn't fit us. Please. We say, I believe in one God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. The Virgin Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't care if you believe that. I don't care if you believe in the Trinity. I don't care if you believe in the resurrection of Christ. If you can't get the basics down, I don't care that you believe in life everlasting. Satan can say the creed with us. Lucifer can stand up here and say, because he does believe that there is one God. He knows that. He can say almost the entire creed with us. So big deal that you can say it. Not impressed. Unless there's a difference. Unless that creed and that belief motivates us in what we think and do and say in this world, in the way that we envision our lives and the meaning and the purpose and if we can just get to that basic idea that God is the author of life, and we simply, it's not in our job description of what God gave us to do 
to make decisions that would harm the innocent. Brothers and sisters, if you're pro-abortion, i got nothing for you. I got nothing for you, nothing I can share with you about Scripture, about the life of Jesus Christ, about the history of the church, about the world that we're waiting for, about the reason that we... I got nothing for you. I'm wasting my time up here. If you just can't get that first thing down, please, can't you see I am begging you? Don't you get it? I don't want any of you to grow up, you young people, to become abortionists. I do not want any of you girls to have abortions and to suffer from the trauma that they don't want you to speak about. That women who have had abortions are haunted with. I don't want any of you boys taking your girlfriends or paying for your wife or forcing your daughter to get an abortion. I don't want any of you young people to grow up to be judges or to be lawyers and enact laws that will further the desecration of the sanctity of life, and I do not want you to vote for political candidates who tell you to their face that they're in favor of killing the innocent. Students in Christ, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm not asking you to join anything. You don't have to be a protester. I'm just asking, can we please just get over this first speed bump? Can we just do that? You know, if we just do that and just say, yeah, life is sacred. If we could just, all of us Catholics, do you realize the force that will be unleashed? If we just say, no, no, bars hold, I'm not, we're not doing this. If we could just believe that, watch everything else happen. Watch it all fall together, but we got to believe that first. I'm not asking you to go out and do anything. But brothers and sisters, for Father Billy Costco, the worm has turned. <laughs> and yes, it's largely motivated by the fact that the most powerful man in the world is a Catholic. And his actions squash my little puny voice. Oh, the worm has turned. You may say, oh, are we going to lose the funny Father Billy? That's not possible. (laughs) My sense of humor is sewn into my soul, so. But I got to get off the bus. Man, it is snowing outside. And you know what that is. It ain't snow. And you know where it's coming from. So I got to get off the bus. And I'll probably get my butt kicked, but it's the right thing to do. I just hope this time more than two guys join me. God help us. Don't, Don't applaud. We need to hang our heads in shame. We have tolerated this for too long. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. 
I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, substantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This kingdom will have no end. In the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and alive for the world to come. Amen. Let us now turn to our Heavenly Father and then cry out to Him with the prayers of our community as we pray to Him through our Savior Jesus. As we pray for an increase of vocations to the priesthood and religious life, we ask You, Lord, for peace in our nation, we ask You, Lord, for courage to share, explain, and defend our faith, we ask You, for married couples who place their love in God's hands, we ask you, Lord. For our friends who have asked us to pray for them today for their material, emotional, and spiritual needs, we ask you, For our own personal intentions, which we carry in our hearts at this Mass, we ask you, And now let us join together as we pray the prayer for a new parish home. Lord, help us in our endeavor to build a new home. Enlighten us to see how you are leading us, both as a church and as a family. Through the intercession of St. Henry, we ask for guidance and inspiration during this journey of faith, so that the fruit of our labor may live on for many generations. Amen. Please be seated as we now enter into the liturgy of the Eucharist. We are talking about financing wars, creating wars, so basically creating a lot of misery in this world. So, lots of conflict. And then I think to myself, if only people knew what the world is really like. They are actually all friends on the same side. Everybody thinks there are opposites like good and bad guys in the world. But on the higher levels, it is just a game and they are all working together. But then at some point, I was invited, which is why I'm telling you all this, to participate in sacrifices. Abroad. That was the breaking point. Children. 
To put it carefully, most of these people followed a not very mainstream religion. So, you have Catholics, Protestants, all sorts of religions. These people, most of them, were Luciferians. And then you can say, religion is a fairy tale, God doesn't exist, none of that is real. Well, for these people, it is truth and reality, and they served something immaterial, what they called Lucifer. Ronald, you have a very strong background in the financial sector, asset management, deposit trading. As far as I understood, can you tell us something about your experiences? For how long did you work there? Well, my experiences are more complicated than what you mentioned just now. Actually, I have been an entrepreneur my entire life, independence being the key component to me. I have once tried being an employee, but that didn't work out. Being an entrepreneur, I have seen many sectors, amongst which I have experienced the financial world. All my other companies as an entrepreneur, like my own fashion line for ladies, car dealership and also import-export, had me involved to such an extent with building up my own fortune, it inherently guided me into the world of finance. Working in import-export, you encounter different currencies and you have to go to the exchange to trade through brokers. And one of the brokers said at some point, Ronald, I've been looking at your life for a long time and you are always busy. You earn money, we know, but what is your goal? And I replied, the only goal I have as an entrepreneur is to earn as much money as I possibly can, because, the more money I have, the quicker I can retire, be free and of course have status. Basically everything you want in this society or at least, that's what I thought back then. So the broker said, in that case, stop what you are doing now, stop with all those companies and just start dealing money, go into the financial world. And that is the beginning of that situation that is connected to your original question. The broker had a place in the exchange market and he dealt in currencies, deposits, so trading in assets to make money out of differences in interest rates and that involved the aforementioned asset management. Those three aspects together formed the interested package I said yes to. He said, all right, you can take my place here, I'll train you introduce you into the network, but in exchange I want 10% of your annual earnings. So he basically sold me his spot in the financial world and asked a 10% commission which I paid him. I said, yes, fine with me. Then he replied, there is one thing you need to know, if you can't put your conscience in the proverbial freezer, 
And I don't mean on minus 18 degrees, but on minus 100 degrees, then don't get involved in this. That was the message, you want a lot of money, you can obtain that, I can help you, but it comes at a great cost. Because you cannot do this with a clear conscience. Well, I laughed at that, I was young and naive. From my youth, from the way I came into life, my far from ideal youth led me to develop a certain view of the world and humanity. What do you mean by that? No warm, loving family? My mother always did the best she could to make us feel loved. But she was hampered by the due to the behavior of my father who caused us to feel more like we lived in a war zone with each other. That isn't an exemplary situation to grow up in. And as a child growing up like that, led me to believe that the world and humanity are far from great. So putting your conscience in the freezer was fitting in as a starting point? I was partially already used to doing that out of self-preservation. So to put my conscience in the freezer was not an impossible task to me. So it became a survival mechanism to you? Yes, yes. And my view of humanity and the world around me wasn't exactly positive either. I only thought of myself, that the way I grew up to be out of self-preservation and I got into that deal. Which meant that slowly I build up a customer base. And as I improved my skills within the network, I got deeper into the financial world. And then it turns out the world is really small and you keep noticing that. Even when I was still working in import-export dealing in grain and such, you notice it is just a small circle. And if we talk about the hardcore circle in the financial world, I don't mean Miss Jean at the bank but the big global flows of money which you use for trading. You are talking about worldwide cash flows, so not the Netherlands in particular where you started working? The Netherlands do play a distinct part in this story but the world does not revolve around it. The Netherlands are a part of a large global financial system in which you work through exchange mark if you want to do official transactions. And many banks, who do the currency exchange, get certain assignments from clients, which they can't get away with easily. Then the need arises for people like me, to with the straw men where big money flows are involved. We used certain financial constructions, international legislation, to move money in such a way making everything okay. 
So all supervisors, regulatory bodies that are in place worldwide, because they are that no one wakes up seeing what is going on, like a year or two ago, with the scandal around Panama. The Panama Papers? Yes. Tax evasion. I think, well that was about avoiding taxes, tax evasion is when you break all the rules. This had to do with avoiding. But when you see what happened there, I'm like guys that is old news. And who are you bring with that because it is peanuts and hardly relevant. However, for the common people, that is great news, but it is not anything big, but it does show. There is something very wrong in this world. For example, there are people in the Netherlands, with certain positions, who have bank accounts in Panama, with legislation that allows them not to pay taxes in the Netherlands, which is completely legal. Constructions like that were part of my job. When we had to change currency, we had changes, the first boycotts in Iraq in the early 90s, when there was a boycott in Iraq because of the war that started there. And we were confronted with what we called Iraqi dollar. Iraqi dollars, which were actually American dollars. The American dollar has a direct relation to the oil prices which made it a world trading currency backed up by oil. As long as that connection is in place, the dollar has a value. Officially, the Iraqi people weren't allowed to sell their oil due to the boycott. In theory that is, because never before there was such a big business in oil. With discounts in this case, because officially it wasn't allowed, so with discounts it still crossed the borders. These dollars, because the energy was always paid in the dollars, so the Iraqi dollars had to go somewhere. You couldn't just take them to the desk at the bank because of all the regulations and checks did provide a certain protection because money laundering and criminality wasn't anything new back then, now we call it terrorism. But that was then also the case. So, then you need people to take the heat. As straw men, you got invited to a bank, for example, in Germany's, with basements full of trucks filled with money. And then you think, sure. Trucks, transports, a busy company, come with me, then they show you they are all filled to maximum capacity with dollars. And they tell you we need to get rid of all this cash. So change them pounds, German marks, this, that, in such way and it needs to go there and there. Are we now talking about money laundering? Well, processing cash processing cash in such a way that we can legally reintroduce it into the money circuit. So that was your task? That was an assignment my colleagues and I got. You are never alone on an assignment, because you cannot do this on your own. It is not possible. We all know Scrooge McDuck scooping money with his shovel, well we literally had to do that over there. It was impossible to process all at once. 
So, then you need to find a way. Cash used to be the predominant way of paying, where nowadays most is digital. But you tried to find a way to process the cash. How do you reintroduce the cash into the circuit so Iraq can deal in its soil without being hampered? Because they are the ones that own the money. Iraq doesn't want. Look, you mentioned money laundering, but what it was about the boycott, Iraq had to stick to the rules, and buy, you know, everything you want to know about the world. You can know by following the money. That is the bottom line. Everyone can say blah, 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 but make sure you follow the money, then you'll find the truth. Same thing goes for that situation. So the only thing Iraq and their buying partners wanted, was to remain free of any accusations. Because the partners who bought it were the ones placing the boycott in the first place but they are actually all friends on the same side. Everybody thinks there are opposites like good and bad guys in the world. But on the higher levels, it is just a game and they are all working together. However, they do have to stick to the rules and regulations, they themselves have created to keep the rest of society suppressed and make sure that it will not be too crowded at the top. So you have to play by your own rules. So what is going on there, is to make sure that nobody can trace you, apart from the elite themselves. Nobody in lower ranks can find out what really happened. Compartmentalized, that's how we call it. Yes. Everyone knows only his own little piece. Only the elite knows what is happening. Yes, but because we were doing the dirty work, we had to know a lot because we couldn't afford to make any mistakes. How high in the pyramid did you get? Were you close to the top of the pyramid? Well, we were communicating with them. My ego would have loved it when I got to this position of belonging to the top itself. Nowadays we still talk about 8,000 to 8,500 people in the world who run the entire world. It would have been amazing to get into such a position back then. All right, but if we say the top knows 100%, can you estimate how much you knew and understood of what happened? In my work, I had to know 100% of what was going on. There was no other way, because of the interests of the people involved were huge. Especially for the top. If I wouldn't know all the details, I would end up making mistakes. Which would cause a spin-off, because those mistakes would be detected. Then the people that don't know anything about it would interfere. We are talking about having nerves of steel to function at this level. So did you have nerves of steel? Yes, it worked just fine. The freezer worked very well for you. Yes, I played at the highest level for about five years. And then it was totally over, out and done with. That was a very intense moment for me. That happened suddenly? Well, no the thing is, I gave a small example of what was involved. 
binnen die handel speelde. Dus dat so, dus in dit geval currency exchange, dollar to something else. Het ging erom deposited in a safe manner. And managing assets well, so it could grow to rate of return, leading to reinvestments with the money. The level I played it in those five years, and that didn't happen overnight, you need to earn your place. I am skilled at connecting the dots, information in order to achieve a full picture of all the things involved. Op een bepaalde manier met elkaar te combineren. Waardoor need to be taken into account within the playing field. rekening mee moet houden binnen het speelveld. Which is a very detailed process. You stand out when you are gifted in this. This is the reason I was trusted with the full 100% of the information where it concerned my jobs. So, I didn't know about everything they knew, but everything that I needed to know regarding the case I was working with colleagues. I was often put in the leading role, because I kept a good overview of the situation. You're good at making quick switches. Yes, and I was good at innovative thinking to solve the problem. I had fun creating solutions in such a way to always stay ahead and outsmart them. Staying within the rules of the game but playing around with them to make everything match up. I love that game. However, on the other hand you had a great amount of responsibility and you learned more and more about the real world since through the financial world you learn all of the actual truth. So you say all, in what regard? Well your clients give you glimpses of how the world really works. In hindsight, I still didn't know everything. But I did know a lot, because my clients were banks who didn't want blood on their hands, but within those banks there always is a number of people who know damn well what is going on, so, like 1% within a bank knows the truth of the matter regarding the happenings within the world, which is not surprising, considering they are involved in the flows of money, those are your clients, you also have governments to deal with, multinationals, you have to deal with secret services, and what they now call terrorist organizations. You get all of the groups that are involved with the big money as clients. Then you start seeing the connections, so, they might be compartmentalized as you just mentioned, regarding knowledge. But because I am in the middle I see how they relate to another. You see the money coming from this place then going to that place, etc. You keep gaining information and thereby, an overview of what is really going on. So do you have to serve and keep all of those groups happy, including terrorist organizations? You were trying to keep everybody happy? Yes. My God. That was my job. Keeping all the balls in the air. Yes, indeed. So one of the things that I found out, I did not know that before, but now am I do, is about secret services. You think they are there to serve and protect a people, country, etc. But they actually turn out to be the criminal organizations, to be more precise. The system is heavily so. We are talking about financing wars, creating wars, so basically creating a lot of misery in this world. So, lots of conflict. And then I think to myself, if only people knew what the world is really like, secret services will stop at nothing. 
Nothing. But they also have their flows of money, because if they are trading in drugs or weapons or, for that matter, people, all that money has to go somewhere. Everything has to be financed. You say it, but you could confirm they are doing this? All of them? All of them? So the entire world as we think we know it, is just an illusion we believe in. Which is something you find out in this line of work and where it all went wrong for me, to put it that way. Right, you mean, finally that is. In hindsight, yes it was for the best but, my freezer started to malfunction. There were things happening, for example I went to a different trade market and one of my colleagues there said, Ronald, you remember that case with the Italian lira? I sometimes mention that during talks as well. Do you remember those deals, in which we did massive dumping of the lira, which reduced the value of the currency? which caused a company in Italy to be hit in such a way, they went bankrupt. And then you hear at the exchange, you remember that successful deal with the lira? Yes. And then they say, did you know that the owner committed suicide and left a family behind? Things like that. And back then we laughed at it. Altogether, all of us. We looked down on people, mocked them, it was just a product, waste, everything was worthless trash, nature, the planet, everything could burn and break. Just useless parasites. Just as long as we met our goals, as long as we were growing, many of my colleagues ended up drinking or using drugs. Not me, maybe I should have. Or not. No, in hindsight, it was for the best and I'm happy to still be alive. However, all those horrible things started to eat at me. Can you give an example, because I can sense a lot of terrible things happen to you? Yes, it is difficult for me to talk about. I can feel that, but only whatever you wish to share is alright. Yes, I only talk about things I want to tell, but it does evoke lots of emotions and with my conscience not being in the freezer, it touches me deeply. Yes, I feel the same way. All right. Can you tell me the worst thing that has happened that caused the tipping point in your situation? Well, that was the beginning of the end, you get so deep into these circles. And you sign a lifetime contract, not with blood or anything, to never disclose names of companies, organizations or people. I think that is why I am still alive, you have to stick to it. If we are talking about the worst things that I have experienced, I just told you about things that made the freezer glitch, my conscience started to show itself. Let's put it this way, I was training to become a psychopath and I failed, I did not complete the training and didn't become a psychopath, my conscience came back and the most difficult part for me was, because I had such a great status there, I was a success, I was trusted with the people playing at this level.
To put it carefully, most of these people followed not very mainstream religion. So, you have Catholics, Protestants, all sorts of religions. These people, most of them, were Luciferians. And then you can say, religion is a fairy tale, God doesn't exist, none of that is real. Well, for these people, it is truth and reality, and they served something immaterial, what they called Lucifer. And I also was in contact with those circles, only I laughed at it because to me they were just clients. So, I went to places called churches of Satan. So now we are talking about Satanism. Yes. So, I visited these churches, just as a visitor, dropped by, and then they were doing their holy mass with naked woman and liquor and stuff. And it just amused me. I didn't believe in any of this stuff, and was far from convinced if any of this was real. It was just a spectacle to you. Yes. In my opinion, the darkness and evil is within the people themselves. I didn't make the connection yet. So I was a guest in those circles and it amused me greatly to see all those named women and the other things. It was the good life. But then at some point, I was invited, which is why I'm telling you all this, to participate in sacrifices abroad. That was the breaking point. Children. You were asked to do that? Yes. And I couldn't do that. Would you like to stop for a moment by the way? No. And then I started to slowly break down. I lived through quite a lot as a child myself and this really touched me deeply. Everything changed. But that is the world I found myself in. And then I started to refuse assignments within my job. I could no longer do it. Which made me a threat. I was no longer capable of functioning optimally. My performance started to shake and I had refused tasks. I had not participated. The purpose of the whole thing, eventually, in that world, is that they have everybody in their pocket. You need to be susceptible to blackmail. And blackmailing me proved to be very hard if I look back on it. They wanted to do that through those children. And that broke me. Is that, you are not telling me something new, what they also do in politics? If you Google this, you'll find enough worldwide witness accounts to know this isn't a Walt Disney fairy tale. Unfortunately, the truth is, that worldwide they have been doing this for thousands of years. I once studied theology and even in the Bible you find references to these practices with Israelites. 
The reason the first ten tribes were banished to Babylonia was because of these rituals with children, including the sacrificing of children, so this is pertinent, all this made me believe, because I realized there was more to life than meets the eye, there is a whole invisible world, it is real, you really do talk about a dark force and a manifestation of light. So, I resorted to studying theology to make sense of it all. And psychology as well if I remember correctly? Yes, but that I did in my first life, because through commercial psychology, mass psychology, I was able to manipulate situations for my own benefit. That is scary, because if you dig into that you find Tavistock Institute and Mind Control, MKUltra, Monarch and the like. Yes, that is correct but that was all part of the job. Through training at the job, I got into that more deeply, because when you are making deals, you also need to manipulate the media. You have to manipulate lots of things because nothing can be seen as it is. Everything has to appear to be something different. You see the people as a flock of sheep. You put a couple of border collies and drive them in a direction. And to be honest with you, I still see that happening around me. People are still, through the systems and methods that we ourselves use to use, being treated in that same way and it still works. People still don't understand how it really works and are still on the level of as long as I have my beer and whatever, completely self-absorbed, also a survival mechanism, I mean it is the program after all. But you still see how stupidly easy it is to put people in a certain direction, when you are the one pulling the strings that is. Mass psychology. Yes, and later, much later, in all those studies and discoveries, I found a document which they are claiming is bullshit of course, the Protocols of Zion. And nowadays I recommend everyone to read the whole of that incredibly boring document. Just work through it, read it though. We are also talking about Zionism. Yes, of course. If you read the protocols of Zion, and really study them and understand, then it is like reading the newspaper of the daily life. How from their position of ultimate power, and ultimate it has literally become. But that is only because the people don't stand up for themselves. They don't realize what reality is. And we have all been programmed, if you dare to say you are against Zionism, then you are branded an anti-Semite. The negative, you can say evil, the Luciferians, the Satanists, whatever you wish to call it, it is a real entity. I have found that what is written in the Bible, and not just the Bible, you can find it in so many books. There really has been a moment of separation from the manifestation of light, in which a group went their own way and are carrying an intense hatred, anger. The people who do not underestimate the severity of this are but few. Because this is an all-annihilating force that hates our guts, it hates creation, it hates life, and it will do anything to destroy us completely. 
And the way to do that is to divide humanity. Divide and conquer is their truth. Humanity is a manifestation of light, that is the true creation. As long as you divide them based on political parties, skin color, you name it, then you, from a Luciferian point of view that is, suppress the full capacities of your enemy, their full power. They can't stand up for themselves, because if that would happen, the Luciferians would lose. Then this monster, the greedy monster would disappear. I tell people about this old American general who puts an entire room of people in the dark. The eyes adapt to the darkness, but you can't see a thing. The general doesn't say a word and suddenly he flicks on a lighter, one little light. And due to the prolonged darkness, you experience a manifestation of light from a single point and everyone can slightly see each other again. And then he says, that is the power of our light. Beautiful. Unite. Unite. Come together. And this entire story ceases to exist. That's how fast it could happen. But that is easy for me to say now. But then I was in a period of my life in which I was crumbling down. Could you tell us something specific about that? How did that happen? Because you were invited. I started to refuse assignments. My conscience came back after the request involving the children and I started to refuse more and more. I had a conscience and I couldn't function anymore. But you did still show up at work after that? I didn't really have a choice. I had my own business with several offices and employees. Everything was still rolling. It must have been hard. Yes, it got very hard, all the tensions. So, on the one hand you are playing with money on a high level, in which you can't afford to make mistakes. Otherwise everything falls down at once. Your entire business is ruined, everybody involved, including yourself. Then you are really screwed. So that brings a lot of stress, factoring in the resurfacing of a conscience. I was warned off when I got into this, don't do it if you can't put your conscience at minus 100 degrees in the freezer. And you probably realized that then? Yes, I heard myself laugh at it back then, but it wasn't a joke at all. I totally did not understand where I really got into. And your proverbial freezer was switched off? Broken. I couldn't do it anymore. So, I tried to work through it, keep up appearances. I didn't know how to get out of this. I was trapped as well. Everybody was trapped. This all led me to crash completely eventually. My body just simply stopped. The first thing I saw was my mother crying at the intensive care. You ended up at the IC? Yeah, I really shut down. You had literally crashed? Yes, yes. At that time I didn't believe in anything, not I can still recall how I saw, from that corner, I was looking down upon myself, I saw how they were working on me. You had a near-death experience. 
Well you could call it that. I have seen I am not my body. I'm in my body. But I am not just my body. I have seen them working on me. And later on, I've been reluctant to talk about it for a long time. I really talked about it much later. But when I did, I had researched so many things already and started to believe. I was starting to better understand the spiritual and the material. At that point, this intense experience got its own place. The realization that I'm not my body. It's just a vessel. So, I lived through all of that, but I also needed a long time to recover. Yes, of course. Yes, I was a train wreck. Complete wreck. I was completely burned out. I had crashed and the body needed a year to recover. Because, I don't really want to get into it now but in those circles, I got tortured physically during my exit time. This was in order to make sure I would never break the contract of secrecy. So, I was taken for a certain amount of time, I was treated. All those factors together, just increased the stress I was experiencing. Literally running full speed towards my own end. Do you mean abductions, as well call it, or programming? No, they exposed me to certain types of torture. That makes sure you'll never damage anyone in that world. I didn't realize that back then, so this is all from hindsight. It did all happen that way. So the end of my first life was so extreme that I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't handle it anymore, in no way. However, my mind power was so strong, that it only happened with and to my own body. That was, well, I didn't know what to do anymore. There were no options left for me. So that is why sometimes I think, of course that is not true, but I wish, like so many colleagues, I had taken the drugs and alcohol route, at least my end would have been more gentle, because most of them are just dead by now. Even though I know there are more strawmen walking around, there are little still alive whom I knew back then. Most of them are already gone. Well I was dead too, but I'm still here. So, you still have something left to do? Yes. I suppose you could say that, but that is, I can't say in short, since, I don't know how long we have been talking, the world that I found myself in, if you have any specific questions, then I can answer them, but I had hoped to be more concise, but I just don't know how. Well, you have my gratitude for all you have shared. To me, it is still a very big deal. You're perfect, McMichael, perfect. Thank you for the time. Yeah. Okay, so like, like I said, I, I'm, I'm super stressed out. Um, you are my penultimate interview. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best in 40 minutes. I've got a call at five. There are no other slots I've got to turn to. 
some urgent things um, and then maybe see you on the other side if I do get out of the country then that's different but at the moment things are getting super critical that you are my penultimate interview whether it works or not so ask me whatever you like or else I can you know just talk depends on what you want to do Brandon yeah. I'll let you start go ahead okay well uh, yeah. Michael, thank you so much for being on here with us. Uh, we understand it's a very, very tense time right now. Um, you know, obviously, our last stream got compromised, so we're trying to do this this way. So there's a few questions that we're obviously going to be duplicated, um, but I don't see anybody better than you to be able to ask these questions to. So thank you so much for your time for being here. We understand uh, you're on a time limit, so we're going to really get to this right now. Um, one of the questions I really wanted to ask you, first and foremost, is um, obviously you've been compromised by this whole situation. You're not doing this for fame, for money, for ego. Um, if anything, you're being attacked for this. You know, So if you could just speak to that a little bit, just so that people can understand a little bit about your background and that... Uh, you're doing this for the benefit of people to get the information out. Yes, yes, thank you very much. So, yes, so uh, briefly, I'm, I'm Dr. Mike Eden. I'm a recently retired um, lifer. I've spent my whole career as a uh, professional commercial scientist in the pharmaceutical industry and in biotech. So, I was uh, at the Wellcome Research Labs and then Pfizer UK the last of 17 years. I left as vice president and um, Chief Scientist of Allergy and Respiratory Research Worldwide. So I was responsible for a selection of new projects that we would run in the lab all the way up to hopefully selecting a development, a clinical development candidate and going into early patient studies and after that would hand off when successful to full development. So that's what I did. Um, training, a degree in biochemistry and toxicology. And then I did a research-based PhD in respiratory pharmacology. So a broad understanding of life sciences disciplines as they apply to um, you know, pharmaceutical or drug treatment R&D. So reasonable understanding of pathology, you know, the underlying causes of disease and how to treat them. Um, I left Pfizer 10 years ago, so it's not that relevant that I was at Pfizer really, I don't think, but people seem to gravitate to that. Well, in the last 10 years, I've been an independent. Um, five or six years of that time, I was CEO and co-founder of a biotech company. Uh, with a couple of former colleagues, uh, raised 14, 45 million US dollars in equity finance. An early stage compound through some phase two studies, so studies in patients with um, eczema or atopic dermatitis. Uh, the studies were produced a successful result, and based on that data, Novartis, the world's biggest drug company, acquired that company mm -hmm. I was in, and so. I made money for the investors and for my, my co-founders and for me. So at that point, I was early retired, relatively wealthy, no worries. Um, so the last couple of years, I've just been doing a bit of light consulting. So I've worked for about 30 startup companies, mostly in the US. So that's me. Um, I've never made a single comment publicly about anything in my life from briefly as CEO of the biotech, so I had to be its public face, so I would speak in the trade press or to financiers. Other than that, I've never said anything publicly about anything. I've never hugged a tree. I've never, I've <laughs> never posted leaflets for a political party. Uh, I've never been a conspiracy theorist because people always ask me that. I've never done anything. I, I'm mm -hmm. a very, very boring 
BBC watching um, telegraph <laughs> reading <laughs> class retired by was a hobby. Right, so that's who I am. Right, yeah. right, that's who I am. I would say I was very good at what I did. Nothing else. I was very. I loved science. I was, really liked the puzzle nature of of science. The one of the uh, guys, Professor Sir James Black, who won a Nobel Prize, much older than me, but one of the lectures, last lectures he gave when I was a young scientist, he said that mm-hmm. pharmaceutical R&D is the last really important, truly uh, truly important organised game for adults. So he was, it was slightly a chuckle, but it's, it's a good point. It's a really difficult thing to work out yeah. what's gone wrong in human disease, what are the points of intervention to fix it, and how can you produce uh, benefits at least people's symptoms if not the disease process without hurting them so you're trying to get mm-hmm. benefits without side effects and that's a really really difficult needle to thread and you can go a whole career and not get it so I have not had a drug all the way from idea to the market but I've made contributions to drugs that have produced benefits on the market and taken some ideas all the way to what's called proof of concept so I've done my bit uh, and I was quite good at it and then 2020 came along and by um, I would say by the end of April, yeah, that's right. When we had we had the first lockdown, which was just absurd. Yeah. I was not not happy about that. I was fairly sure it wouldn't work. And then when they extended it, I, my wife reminded me that I was running around the house raving like a lunatic because I said <laughs> we were in trouble. We were in trouble. Seriously, yeah. I knew I, I knew we were, we were in awful trouble. So mm. uh, and so I started speaking out, saying you know basically the. Uh, I didn't. I didn't get there till the end of the year. Initially, mm-hmm. I started by being a very polite scientist and pointing out that the use of this PCR or polymerase chain reaction test for diagnos- diagnosis of viral infections was absurd. Even its inventor, who won a Nobel Prize for it, told us it's not suitable for the purpose. But that's what the government was doing. So, mm-hmm. and I, by about the end of the year, I realised they they weren't just making a few little errors or occasionally a little white lie. Absolutely everything they were telling us was a lie. And then when you look around the world, uh, I realise that every country simultaneously preparedness plans, we all had one, we all threw them in the bin, and they all adopted the eight lies simultaneously. So you, you who are listening to me, you can decide whether that makes me a conspiracy theorist or whether there genuinely is an international plan, because it's obviously the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, so that's what's going on. Um, we're being lied to. I don't know exactly what the purpose is, but we're being locked down. The economy's being smashed. We're, fear is being induced by a mixture of lies and psychological operations. And there you go. I'll stop now. That's where we are. So I've been doing my best to point this out. I've done probably 40 interviews around the world. And um, you're right. I don't get paid for it. I, I've lost all little bits of work I had. Mm-hmm. Um, most people who I say were professional contacts have just literally run and hidden because they they decided to be cowardly, uh, agreeing with me in private, but they won't say anything in public. Uh, but I, I'm I'm telling you this because it's destroying the world I'm in, and I'm quite cross about that. But I'm very much more fearful about the destruction of the normal uh, free world that my children and grandchildren live in. So I will keep going until until this improves, or I die, frankly, because there's nothing else to do. Right, I'll take a question. Absolutely. So I do have something to ask you. A lot of people have been coming to us and they're saying, Dr. Eden, that they're hearing us talk and we're talking, we're hearing everything that's happening, we know what's not good, but what are the solutions? What solutions do you think we can offer people to what's happening right now? What can they do? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, and I hope 
they weren't too disappointed when I say, I, how the hell would I know? I mean, I don't mean <laughs> that disrespectful. I think it's enough to, it, seriously, it's enough to have realised that, you know, absorbed all the information, checked the science, I've read more papers in the last 18 months than in the previous 10 years. So I'm all over all of the immunology, the claimed immunology against this, this virus and the previous viruses. So I absolutely know, for example, that all this rubbish about variants is just nonsense, that the variants don't differ by more than about 0.3%. I know for absolute certain that a virus could differ by 20% and be uh, absolutely no possibility your immune system would think it was a different virus. So I assure you, the variant stuff you're being lied to. And yet, the international borders of my country, United Kingdom, are effectively closed over a lie. They're telling us, don't let these dangerous variants in. It's absolutely nuts. You just need to go and check a couple of papers and you'll realise that you should be as frightened as I am because just literally you're being lied to BBC is not telling the truth. All of the Royal Colleges have either looked at their shoes, shame on you, or, or they're going along with the lies as well. And so there's a lot of intimidation going on. The thing is, I'm not easily intimidated. I've got literally nothing to lose. My life has been smashed. So I will keep going until people wake up. Uh, but how, so how do we respond? I would say, I do believe in the end, anyone who's listening to this, uh, or maybe you've heard me before, if you're waiting for something to happen so that life will get back, uh, to normal, I think you're fooling yourself. You've got to change. I've got change. to you know, It's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. if, if I think it's simple. If enough of us just literally, if we all just turned up at the town hall one evening and said, excuse me, about enough now, there was enough of you can these rotten politicians. I, I, seriously, I, I think if the police were sensible, they'd listen to me and go and arrest. I could give them a list of names. I won't do it now because it'll probably be actionable, but I'd be quite happy to give them a list of names and the prima facie reason why they're criminals, they're seriously criminals, and they should be arrested, lots of them, several senior politicians, quite a few members of SAGE, mm -hmm. and people who run other foundations, you know who I mean, actually are criminal, they've done things that have had the effects of, of killing people, for example, um, pretending there are no effective treatments for this respiratory viral infection, mm -hmm. um, and telling people to stay at home pretty much until they're blue then turn up in hospital and they get ventilated, which is almost, almost always inappropriate. Uh, that's mass murder. That's what they've done. It's mass murder. So we, we could recover if there are enough policemen, uh, and there are a few. I'm in touch with Mark Sexton, who's a very brave officer. Um, you know, so that's one thing. But basically, it's when you withdraw your consent from this nonsense. So let's say you're 14, you've got a couple of kids at primary school, when you withdraw your consent from having your children masked and tested uh, and, and uh, locked down at home because little Johnny's got a positive PCR test, which is utter nonsense, mm. when you withdraw consent, when you show courage, talk to the other parents, tell them it's utter nonsense. There is no unusual hazard in your environment whatsoever except for your government and your compliance government and your compliance there's, there's no there is no threat from the virus right even if there was a threat from the virus which has been whizzing around like a bad smell for almost 18 months i mean don't you really think it's finished by now how long does a novel right. flu take to go through the country four months so do me a favor you know this when i tell you the same virus is supposed to be going around the drain for 18 months and you're all still susceptible the only people who were ever susceptible were the people, unfortunately, who were quite close to the end of their lives, so older than 70 and ill. So if you're under 70 or in good form, 
this virus was never going to kill you, and even if it made you slightly ill, there were at least six drugs, five or six drugs that could treat you. Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, zinc, azithromycin, fluvoxamine, budesonide. See, it's the most treatable respiratory viral illness ever. Really well characterized. So, one, it's not a threat to you unless you're very old and ill. Two, there are loads of good treatments. Three, it's been through the community about six times. So, there is no unusual health threat in your environment except your government's lies and your compliance. That's how we fix it. There's no other way. If you wait for someone else, if you wait for the government to fix it, you're not going to. I don't think that even the government's doing it. I think there's a, you know, there are powerful groups uh, of people, Davos, the Davos set, mm -hmm. World Economic Forum, frankly. I think they're pushing the democratic world into the sea and they will replace it with a technocratic um, dictatorship. And it's easy to do, if you think, before you start giggling, but the, the central tool of, of this technocratic dictatorship will be the smartphone in your hand and 5G, you will have a vaccine passport. It's basically just an app with a tick on it that says you've been a good little boy and girl and you've turned up for your useless jabs. Um, and if you don't have that, you won't be able to beep your way into an aeroplane or beep your way into a supermarket or to a petrol station. Uh, now, vaccine passports have absolutely nothing to safety. And let me just explain why. See, walking down the pavement, and the question is, has that person been vaccinated or not? I tell you if, you, if the answer is yes or no, it makes no difference whatsoever to your safety because if they're not symptomatic and spluttering virus all over you, they couldn't possibly infect you anyway. So their immune status is utterly irrelevant. You, you, honestly, it's not, you have to believe in fairy stories to believe that they're going to infect you with a virus they don't have. But that's what they've got you to believe. It's not true, it's never been true. So you don't need a vaccine passport. It's, it's, you are allowing yourself to be uh, uh, drawn into a process that we will never escape from. If you, if you tolerate this, our whole lives will be based on vaccine passports. And once the system's up and running, um, uh, the person who wrote this book called Technocracy, which is really just an understanding of how sort of scientific dictatorship can begin, he, he is of the view, and I, I share it, that if you're in a territory where vaccine passports start, and it becoming into widespread use for gaining access to things. I think unless the controllers of the database release you from it, and I can see no reason why they would, but unless they do, you can never get out of it. Because if you refuse to play the game, you're excluded from your life. You can't shop, can't go to work, kids can't go to school. So, but if you do comply, um, every now and again, that, that vaccine passport will ping and remind you to turn up for a new vaccination. So at the very least, it's a compliance tool control tool uh, and lots of vaccines um, and you know the worst end is you will have heard this before but the worst end is much worse than that shall we say and would solve the global warming problem forever so but you can resist right now by just saying uh, I've listened to this Eden guy and he stepped through all the eight lies and I've checked some of the references and don't understand all of it but I've checked some, some of them and they're definitely lying to me see that's the point you don't need to you don't even need to believe everything I've said. I put it to you that if I can prove to you the important thing that's central to your health, you should be angry enough to pull them out of their offices and string them up on, up on lampposts. Now, I don't want you to actually do that. Right? I'm not encouraging criminal activity. Mm -hmm. But you should be that <laughs> and I will, And I will tell you, I will tell you that um, we have been led to believe this is a novel virus to, to which people had no immunity lethal and everyone could catch it and there are no treatments all of those statements are wrong 
But the one that's most important is this, this about no treatment. You can go to a website called uh, American Association of Physicians and Scientists, AAPS, and you'll find uh, a fully peer-reviewed paper with about 50, artists, uh, 50 authors in it, all doctors, who have combined their clinical work around the world over the last year. I think the lead author was uh, a famous physician in the States called uh, Dr. Peter McCulloch. And there it is, black and white, all those treatments work. Your government's lied to you, the NHS has lied to you, doctors have lied to you, SAGE has lied to you. You can go and check that. And if I'm right, you know you've been lied to. You don't really need to go through any of the other lies, but that will do. And so once you discover you're being lied to, you've got two choices. Now, most people, when I get to this point, uh, are so frightened by what I've told them. Some of them actually said, can you stop talking? Because if what you say is true, it's more frightening than the virus. Well, there's nothing I can do for you if you are not willing to be courageous enough to, to do something. Now, you have discovered you're being lied to, then there's nothing I can do. But if you are, then I put it to you, you only need to be convinced the government's lying once about treatments, for example. The failure to use those treatments, to allow physicians to use those treatments, I think, based on the statistics, has probably cost 80,000 people their lives. You know, your brother, your mother, could be yourself, you know, your partner, one of your child, but more likely an older person has died. 80,000 people in the UK alone, several hundred thousand in the US have died over the last year who probably would have lived longer had they not been lied to and allowed to use these treatments. Now, if that doesn't make you angry, there's literally nothing I can do for you. So if you want to follow on like good sheep and wear masks, which don't work, by the way, it's been tested and they definitely don't work. If you, want, if you want to keep wearing the tool of the symbol of compliance and repression and also when you wear a mask you tell everybody around you there's a hazard and they should wear their mask so throw yeah. your mask in the, throw your mask in the trash in the bin please they don't work yeah. uh, seriously so that's one thing you should do immediately throw your mask away and if anyone's cross with you tell them that masks have been tested and do not reduce respiratory viral transmission at all ever right so that's one thing you and so if you carry on wearing masks I hope you can look your children in the eye. What did you do in the war, Dad? Well, I mm. went along like a sheep, so we lost our freedom. How about that? Right, I'll stop now. You can tell I'm quite, I'm quite cross and fed up because I've done this. I've done this over 40 times, and I'm sure I've, I've, I've done all I can do like this. Right, so that's all I can and, do. And quite rightly so, you know. I mean, you know, when you're standing in your position and have the understanding that you have, and you see these things as relatively simple and straightforward and common sense, and, and mm. people just don't see that and they just go along with the narrative it, it is really really infuriating yeah. one of the things it's upsetting. It I is upsetting. really yeah I, I'm, I'm with you 100% um, it, here's something that we're hearing some horror stories of people actually two questions first of all if somebody's already had a vaccination is there I mean they're already on a path is there anything they can do to reverse what's what we're hearing is going to happen to them. That's the first thing. The second thing is if somebody's already had that, the vaccination, if they're around other people who haven't had the vaccination, is there anything to be worried about? Because we're hearing some horror stories of people who haven't been yeah. vaccinated who are around people who have. Sure. Okay, well, on the second bit first, um, this, this shouldn't be a reason to be concerned. So if you just take a vaccine, certainly a conventional vaccine, there's no way uh, you could then become a hazard to somebody else. Um, I, I, and, I'm, and I'm not sure I, 
I'm not sure I think there's a hazard either. I do think there's certainly a phenomenon when in my country more than half the population have been vaccinated. Odd happens in your world. It's not difficult to find someone you know, right next to you or, or just next door who's been vaccinated. So it would be easy for the idea to go around that your medical problem has resulted from being close to someone who's vaccinated. I, I don't think so, but I, I don't want to be... I don't want to be dogmatic because I can't, mm-hmm. I can't be 100% sure. And maybe there's some skullduggery going on. In terms of people who've been vaccinated, are they on a path? So um, just say a little bit more. The history of people trying to develop vaccines for coronaviruses, specifically, unlike influenza viruses, where it's worked reasonably well, vaccines. But COVID, uh, coronavirus vaccines have not been successful. And we don't understand quite why, but they have fallen over in development through a process called uh, antibody-dependent enhancement. In other words, the uh, paradoxically being given the vaccine actually makes you more susceptible to the virus. Uh, obviously, that's not a helpful thing. And people are worried that that might happen with these, with these vaccines. They've not been tested for that propensity in animals, so, it, so we don't know whether that would occur. And, not, and animal models are not always reliable anyway. They're not always a reliable guide. And yes, there are some of my peers, scientific peers, uh, at least a couple of famous people, who they they are so concerned that people who've been given these vaccines are going to get seriously ill and die when they encounter this virus or a very similar virus. And I don't know that that's not true. I would just say that's not my default position. I will recognise it might be true. Um, My my belief is that um, the vaccines are largely being used to herd people into this uh, electronic control system called vaccine passports because I remember them you know ghastly people like Tony Blair who was a war criminal uh, former prime minister telling us the necessity of vaccine passports to open the world up I think it was a year ago before long before we had vaccines and I thought this scaly lizard Blair why is he didn't know anything about vaccines uh, and so on what the hell is he doing so I started looking into vaccine passports and after about five minutes I You don't need a little piece of card. You don't need a little icon on your phone. Um, it, it just, I'll just put it this way. If, you, if you're a susceptible person, uh, if you've been vaccinated and, and everything's gone well, you're already protected. You don't need to be worried about anyone else's status around you. And if you're a young person like me, I'm 61, I'm fit and well, I'm not worried about the virus. I'm simply I'm not in the category of people who fell ill and died. And if I should get ill, I know there are four, five, six drugs that will see me right. 85 to 95% of the time. So I, I have to keep telling people uh, the virus itself is not the thing to be frightened of. It's not that terrifying. It's certainly if the available treatments, the hard one treatments, which is good clinical evidence, if they are available to you, and they damn well should be, you really shouldn't be frightened of it. It's more treatable than influenza. Um, and, and some people have, they've braved the vaccine and they've done okay. So that, that's the end of the story. We do not need vaccine passports. So the idea of, say, making students get vaccinated before they go back to university, what a stupid idea. Why would you want to vaccinate people who are not vulnerable to COVID? Right. Well, because they might transmit it to each other. Who, they won't notice. They'll mostly not have any symptoms. I reckon half of them have had it already. Same with school children. Don't, don't anyone tell you that school children need to be vaccinated to protect granny. Well, one, granny's been vaccinated. Two, there are plenty of good treatments for granny if she gets sick. Three, children rarely catch this virus. 
or they, when they do they don't get symptomatic very often and if they don't they can't spread it don't expose your children don't let these idiots lie to you on the telly in fact mm-hmm. probably turn your TV off because they're just full of lies and liars <laughs> yeah um, yeah seriously, seriously. Um, and um, unfortunately what's really scary and you can go and check this as well is all countries are doing pretty much the same thing at the same time almost yes. as if there's a script being followed that's yeah. you find that terrifying also they're not doing what even the WHO said you should do say I, I remember looking at in 2020 I looked at the existing WHO guidelines for pandemics mm-hmm. and severe pandemics um, guess what so the only things they included were hand washing and uh, quarantining of the sick everything else border closures screening of the well um, masks uh, that, at least those three things Specifically, mm-hmm. actually, specifically excluded them because they've been considered in the past. Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. Locking down of communities. Yeah, I think four things that they were mentioned and specifically excluded. So they weren't in the UK pandemic preparedness plan. They weren't in the WHO plan. But guess what? We've all got them, uh, and you know we all got them at the same time, and they don't mm-hmm. work. So uh, you know, you, again, this is another thing you could check if you want to, but it's you, unfortunately you have to be able to read scientific papers, but. Lockdowns, for example, I think they've been, uh, you know, the curse of the curse of the world over the last year. Restrictions, lockdowns, and so on. Respiratory viruses spread only when a symptomatic person comes into contact with a susceptible person for long enough, right? So, and always inside. So, um, if you don't have symptoms, there's no reason why you shouldn't encounter someone in a cat shop or a cafe or a workplace. Literally, no reason at all. But that's mm. that's what lockdown is. It just it, stops healthy people interacting with each other uh, but that's been studied worldwide and you know, certainly in several states or in some countries or comparing countries with each other and it's absolutely clear cut uh, over 30 peer reviewed journal articles I've read uh, none of them show the slightest hint of quote lockdown working and, and the reason is what I just explained that um, it's symptomatic encounters that matter not average human contacts people say it's a disease of human contacts if you reduce the number of human contacts through lockdown it must work I've heard mm-hmm. idiots journalists that <laughs> think they're clever they've said yeah. that and I, and I remember hearing uh, uh, yeah this guy Snowden who's a complete arrogant idiot um, <laughs> and he said it and, I, and the moment he said it I realised his category error he thinks all contacts are equivalent for transmission of the virus and it's completely wrong it's only mm. the people who are symptomatic they're the ones who have high loads of viruses in their airways and inevitably they have symptoms because the virus attacks them and they mm. fight back that's why you get symptoms There's no other reason if you haven't got symptoms you haven't got a lot of virus Mr Snowden and that means you can't infect other people so you can interact with 99 people and you probably wouldn't communicate the virus mm. now if you're symptomatic guess what we used to call that ill unwell yes. <laughs> if, if you're those things what are you going to be doing wandering around the streets you know going to the petrol station filling up your car popping around the right. supermarket aisles no you're going to be lying on your sofa or in bed or if you're unlucky you might even be in hospital so the mm. point is people who are the strongest sources of infection with the most virus in their airways the best source of infection they're going to be the most symptomatic and the most ill and the least likely to be bumbling about your high street you're not going to absolutely walk the pavement or, or, or in the supermarket and as a result when you shut down society through lockdowns it made no difference whatsoever to transmission most transmission occurs 
here's a question for you. Where do you find symptomatic people and susceptible people together? In Hospitals. Yeah. That's what's oh, full of hospital. sick people. Yeah. So, and then their homes is another one. You know, you've got residents that can't go out or uh, you know, they live together with, and they have staff visiting them. And the last one would be domestic homes. Uh, but most families are quite small, two, three, four, five people. Uh, a lot of people aren't susceptible. So if, if I had the virus, there might be no one else in my house I could give it to, maybe one other person. So the strongest waves of transmission were through institutions, I think. Virtually none of it took place outside. And very little of it inside in the general community because you don't go out if you're feeling that ill. Um, people have told me that they think that's absurd. And I said, why do you think it's silly that people who are symptomatic stay home? Because that's all I'm telling you. And if you are symptomatic and ill and stay at home, you, then you can't infect somebody. But if you're feeling well enough to go out and about, you're probably a low risk. And so that's why lockdowns don't work. And you don't have to accept my explanation, although I think it's quite a good one. You can go and look at the literature, and it's absolutely clear. Uh, 30 studies by, you know, I don't know, hundreds of scientists around the world. Lockdown has never worked, never. Um, and so we, we've still got restrictions in my country. Six months after uh, our, our prime minister, who's probably a criminal, I'm not quite sure. He can't just be stupid. <laughs> Uh, you could, I'm not sure. You can't distinguish between puppets and, and uh, perpetrators, really. Yeah, all the same. Um, but he, so he's following, doing what he's told, I suppose. We have still got limited restrictions. You can only have, I think, six people in your in your back garden or something mm. absurd like that. Um, as if as if that's going to reduce transmission. It's July, folks. It's July. Mm. This, uh, as far as we can tell, it's a seasonal virus everywhere. Uh, every other, right. every other yeah. virus except you know occasional summer colds people get, and certainly uh, uh, hay fever, you know, hay mm. fever allergies. But respiratory viruses, that you know, both ends not in the middle of summer. So yeah. the idea that people are shuffling around wearing masks, I, I just think, I don't know. I think people call that blue pill where you've accepted the lies that the government told you, and it's very uncomfortable being red pilled when you realise that everything they told you is a lie and because as soon as you realize that you realize that there must be a motive and I'm afraid there is and even yeah. though I don't know exactly what that motive is it's not good for you it's, mm-hmm. it's not good for you they're lying for a purpose all the countries all at the same time frightening huh how Very. we do it for time for that nine minutes <laughs> so I, I have one last well I think probably we have time for one last question I'm, I'm going to say this for all the people who've come and said it to me and this is their number one argument with me well, Simone, what about all of those people who have died from COVID? What about them? So, Dr. Ian, I'm going to ask you the same question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what about yeah. all those people who've died? Yes. Well, I, I, yes, you can. So, um, it's important to note that in most countries, there haven't been many more uh, people dying. Uh, haven't been very many more people dying than usual, except for the period around the initiation of lockdown. So certainly in my country, I would say it does look like some people did die of the virus. Uh, I think a lot of other people died because they were moved out of the place they were in, in the hospital, for example, and they weren't fit to leave. Um, uh, certainly in Italy, ghastly stories of um, mm-hmm. some old people's homes being completely abandoned by their staff. And a few days later, people came in and found all the, all the residents literally dead. Uh, so uh, the thing is, um, dying with and dying of this is very important yes. um, 
the, this, the test that they have used, um, the inventor who won a Nobel Prize for it, had said repeatedly, uh, because people have been misusing this test for years, um, Carrie Mullis, that the PCR test is not a suitable test for working out whether you have a clinical infection. It just works out the presence or absence of something. And I'm afraid we are, we are, we are, we are animals and we live in an environment in which there are lots of organisms. So there's probably one copy of every virus that exists probably around me. One copy is so tiny. But PCR test is a very sensitive test. And so you can, he said, you can find almost anything in almost anybody if you run enough amplification cycles. Bottom line is I don't think those people died of COVID. Like 90% of them died of their normal the things they died of. You may know this, for example, two things that are very important. The average age of people who died with or of COVID in the UK almost identical to the average age of people dying from everything else. That they were, they were slightly, slightly older, oddly enough. Seems odd, the disease that's ripping through the population and the average age of death was older than people who died of everything else. And the other thing is they died with an average, I think it was two and a half other serious chronic illnesses each of which shortens their life. So it really, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say, do you know what, they probably died of those two and a half other chronic illnesses. And, and the COVID positive test, I think, was incidental in most cases. I do think maybe 10% of them genuinely did die of respiratory viral infection and they had a sort of flu-like illness that turned into pneumonia and they died. Uh, but I don't think the majority did. So the answer to your question is that, really. Um, I just don't think very many people have died. I don't think it's a particularly lethal virus, to be honest. It's been overplayed. The fear's been overplayed. Yes, definitely. Brandon, do you have anything else? But, yeah, I, I, was asked, I was asked about people who were on a path. Yes, so I didn't answer that question. So, yes, some people think we may, be, we may have primed people to be now vulnerable when they encounter the virus again. That, I would say that's possible. It's certainly not the drum I'm beating uh, because I don't know. But I would say there are good treatments for, for COVID-19 disease and so why not make sure you're around uh, uh, an educated and um, open-minded physician because if you do get symptoms I see every possibility that those treatments could be quite good so if that happens you should be you have a chance but the thing is I, I said I believe the vaccines were being used to sort of uh, herd people onto accepting a digital ID, vaccine passport, which you definitely mm -hmm. don't need. It does not add anything to safety. So what I was going to say is don't accept a booster top-up variant or third vaccine. Definitely don't need it. Once you've become immune, um, uh, certainly natural immunity seems to last years to decades. We've studied it in a, the most similar previous virus, so-called SARS, in 2003. People have stayed perfectly uh, immune for at least 17 years so that's probably true with this one so don't let anyone lie to you fool you and tell you need to turn up for another vaccine because i'm i'm fearful that that's at the very least a control measure that's going to sort of cost lots of money and at worst it could be something that's designed to injure you mm -hmm. but just make it not an issue by not turning up you don't need it mm -hmm. you don't need it Fantastic. you literally don't need it i just want to make very clear to all our viewers and anybody who catches the replay of this that first and foremost you're not an anti-vaxxer um, you're not one of these people who is, is making anything out of this, who's looking for any fame, any fortune, who's trying to push any conspiracy theories. You've been very clinical in your understanding of this whole situation. You haven't really said anything until you've understood it. And then you've come out and you're telling people that 
you know, this is something very dangerous, that you do not need this, but this is not for your benefit in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I, you know what? I don't really... If somebody wants to decide I'm a, quote, anti-vaxxer, I've spent 32 years in the pharmaceutical industry. It doesn't mm. sound very likely that I would be an anti-vaxxer, does it, really? Absolutely. You you, honestly, you would have to be stupid if you think that's my motive. Right? Yeah. I've, made, I've made plenty of money I could, I could retire. I've spent the, the whole of my life for the last year trying to warn people uh, mm. that we're being done. Uh, no, I've, as I said before, I've had no public comment about anything prior to that and no... I don't monetize anything, I don't know how to do it, and also I don't need to. So, mm-hmm. no, um, uh, the only reward I, I get for telling people, my, sharing my scientific insights, is lots of insults. So, if you want to believe that makes me onto that, so then screw you. Seriously. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. <laughs> I really don't care. I'm clearly, I am not your audience, am I? If you want to think I'm an anti vaxxer, so screw you. Mm hmm. I appreciate your candidness, honestly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, can tell, you can tell I've had enough, folks. I, I've done this. Absolutely. I've done it over 40 times, and uh, you know, if you want to carry on believing those liars, it saves mm. you want to believe those liars in government, you be my guest, because do I look like I'm making money out of this and enjoying it? No, I'm telling it to you because it's true. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I'm, prob- I'm probably done with this format, so <laughs> you're my yeah. penultimate guest, and I'm going to move on to something else. Well, with that, okay. you know, personally, uh, you know, I just want to say thank you yeah. so, so much for, um, you know, I always say at the end of my shows, when a strong person takes a stand, the uh, spines of many others stiffen, and, and that could 